0: Good to see you this evening. We are looking at uh, revival. That's what we're looking at in, in this month. And um, just to let you know that next month we're going to extend this series. What I will be doing next month is one week we will be looking at one of the actual revivals that took place in Great Britain. Uh, I did a book called Land of Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages. And so one Sunday, I will take you through one of these revivals. Uh, We'll find out what took place and uh, the principles of revival and how God comes into history. So that'll be one Sunday. The next Sunday, I'm going to focus on a message from Colin's book, Hearts on Fire, Walking in Personal Revival. These were messages that Colin preached during a period of time in KT where God was bringing a great deal of personal revival into many people's lives. So one week it will be a revival from history. We'll talk about that. I'll tell you the story of that revival. And then the next week we'll be focusing on some teaching about personal revival in our own lives. I mentioned these books because they're available for you uh, priced three pounds each, and if you want them, you can get them in the foyer. Collins is sermons and teaching on revival in our lives, and uh, and mine, have, as I mentioned, is sort of the history of revival. So, who, who, anybody near the back of of, of today who's, who's not got this book, Hearts on Fire, right at that? Okay, lady in the orange, yep. Could we just? Give, give it to the lady in, in the orange with the glasses, and um, no, I, right, and, and the lady. If you got Land of Hope and Glory in the blue, and then the lady in the blue jacket can have the Land of Hope and Glory. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get one. Ah, well, it's always next week. <laughs> Excellent. Now, today I wanted to speak a little bit about personal revival. We have um, been looking at introductory material on revival, and um, we started by saying, Well, is revival in the Bible? What is revival? What's the concept? And I took you to the Old Testament, and we looked at the Hebrew word for revival. And the Hebrew word for revival basically speaks about the breath of God, breathing in the breath of God. That's what the the Hebrew word for revival really means, breathing in the breath of God. And that's why um, in Ezekiel chapter 37, we have such a wonderful picture of revival, Because in Ezekiel 37, you've got the prophet being taken by God to see a valley full of dead bones, and God asks Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And that's the big question about revival, when you look out at uh, the world or different parts of the world, and it looks lifeless. I mean, if we were to take a ministry trip together and go to China and go to some of the uh, places that aren't being monitored, we would see revival, massive revival taking place in the nation of China. But if we look out at Europe, we'd say, well, to be honest with you, apart from a few pockets, it does look like Ezekiel's Valley of Bones. Also, the question that was asked to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Sometimes we can look at our own lives and wonder, well, will you know, can revival ever come to me? Can can, When we look at the struggles that we go through and the situations that we find us and we're not everything that we should be, sometimes it's easy to to give up hope on yourself and think, well, I'll never really change. Well, you know, I've been trying and will, will I ever really radically move forward in the things of God? Can these dry bones live? And the work of the Holy Spirit... And revival is a work of the Holy Spirit. Even when you're seeking God for for revival, whether it's personal revival in your life, or seeking God for revival in church or cell group, or even seeking God for revival for a nation, even your seeking comes from God. That's what we have to recognize. The moment you start longing for God, it's a work of God. Nobody longs for God. No, not one. It's a work of the Spirit. Now, we cooperate with that work, um, but, but it's God at work in our lives. Now, when we speak about revival in the church, and I took you in the Old Testament to, gave you some examples of the reviving work of God in the Old Testament. But then we ended up in the reviving work of God in the New Testament and Pentecost. Now, the Holy Spirit is at work in the church today. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit in general at work in the church today, God is at work in his spirit in a a normal day-to-day work. God is at work. But when we speak about revival, what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit coming in an exceptional and unusual way into people's lives. We're speaking about an unusual, exceptional intervention of the Holy Spirit. I said there's two dangers when you talk about revival. There are those at one extreme, all they're interested is in the unusual and exceptional work of the Holy Spirit. So they're sort of like chasing revival. Whenever they hear stories of something unusual or exceptional happening around the world where God is breaking in, they're first on the plane of over there they want to be first to see it and there's nothing wrong with that by the way but the problem the dangers with extremists in this is they're not interested in daily in in uh, in daily church they're the last people that would join a cell why because that's not revival they want unusual and 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 exceptional things and and that's all they're thinking about and sometimes that's all they're chasing But these unusual and and, and, uh, exceptional manifestations of the Holy Spirit, those aren't the things that we should be running for anyway. What we really want is God's work in our lives. So you've got some that are so talking about revival all the time that they're no use in in a general way in the local church, that they won't get involved because they they think that somehow it's boring or, or they're waiting for the big event to happen and they don't cooperate with the Holy Spirit week by week. But then you have the other extreme. And these are those that are often the faithful members, faithful churches, and they're cooperating with the Holy Spirit week by week and month by month. Nothing greatly exceptional or unusual is happening in their experience, but God is at work. People are being blessed and touched by God. People are getting saved here and there, and, and they're cooperating. And when you talk to them about revival, they're not interested in it at all. They think it's, it's just crazy talk, it, that it's unrealistic and that, and that actually pursuing revival is, is a little bit like, um, you, know, ha, you know, daydreaming and not being real. Oh, yeah, when revival comes, when revival comes, well, we need somebody to do the work now. And so the danger is there is that, is that they have no heart for a great inbreaking of God. And what that means is that they usually have set a ceiling on what's possible on what's not possible. They don't have a deep yearning or desire for great change because they don't actually believe that great change is happening. And therefore, they don't have the pursuit of of God coming in. They're not believing God for a great move. They're not believing God to come in another Pentecost. And that's a danger as well because a healthy church and a healthy Christian always has a place in their lives where they're seeking God for revival for more of God for God to break in for God to do something unusual for God to breathe on his church again and that means that they will be planning in their minds they'll be thinking you know what happens if God breaks in it the, the pursuit of a re, of revival the pursuit of, of revival is an end in itself because when you're seeking God for a great breakthrough, when you're seeking God for personal revival in your life and a breakthrough, or if you're seeking God for a revival in the church, or a, if you're seeking God, that will change you. The very seeking changes you. So it's not like we're chasing clouds when we're seeking God about revival, talking about revival. It's not like, oh, you know, oh. Dream, dream, dream. You know, you're just dreaming about these things that are never going to happen. Put your feet back on the ground and get on with it. Well, we've spoken about the two extremes there, haven't we? We don't want to be either of those. We we want to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing in whatever difficult situation we find ourselves. Yet at the same time, we also want to have hope. We want to build towards something and seek God um, for that. And I want to take you now to... The book of James, because we're speaking about personal revival today. And the the letter of James, I believe, is the probably, very much, very, most probably, the first letter ever written in the New Testament. The first letter ever written in the New Testament. And the book of James was written in the midst of revival. If we think about the book of Acts and what was taking place at that time, we, we know that the day of Pentecost came and that was revival. We'll look at the day of Pentecost next week and we'll look at what revival looked like in Jerusalem during that time and, and, and what the people were like. So we'll see that as a model of revival. But as that revival came and thousands of people were saved, and God was multiplying and adding to their number, and the hearts of the the new Christians were, were, were radical in their generosity, love for one another, prayer, apostolic doctrine, breaking bread house to house, gathering in the temple, it was a wonderful time. And then what happened was a great persecution hit the church in Jerusalem and caused them to scatter. But what happened was, although the persecution caused a lot of the Jewish Christians to scatter from Jerusalem, it was part of God's revival plan. Because Acts tells us that wherever they scattered, they preached the word of God. They were were in revival. They had to flee for their lives, many of them, but they didn't flee weak, scared, they, they, they said, we've got to leave. But as they went, they said, we'll take this. Way. It was God's way of releasing revival out of Jerusalem into Judea. And so the revival was taking place. Now, James wrote this letter to some of the new churches and gatherings and congregations of, of Jewish Christians that were now appearing out of this revival. they have been scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea, Palestine, they were preaching the gospel to their fellow Jews. People were getting saved. Radical things were taking place. Christian congregations were being, were being formed. Revival was taking place. But James saw very early on that there was a danger that this revival was going to wane. That, that he could see the signs in the congregations, these newly formed congregations, he could see the signs that would stop this great revival work in the hearts of men and women and prevent the gospel to be spread even further. And that's one of the reasons that he wrote the book of James. And I want to just talk to you a little bit about the book of James. We'll focus on chapter 4 later on. But I want you to get a feel of a letter that was written to people that had experienced revival, had gone out to take revival to different places. This was the spread of the gospel in the Acts of the Apostles. But he noticed that there was a problem and a danger that this revival might end. And so when we look at the book of James, he's writing to these people, and he wants the revival to continue, but he's noticed a number of things that are going to choke the word of God, and choke the spirit of God. You know, revival is the breath of God, being breathed breathed into his people, revival awakens it, it, it takes a lazy church and energizes it, a lethargic church, and, and gets it strong, a sleeping church, and, and awakens it to its role. But James saw that what was happening was certain things were getting in to prevent the revival or to kill the revival in people's lives. And the very things that we're trying to kill the revival in these new congregation lives are the very things that we also need to be aware of when we're talking about personal revival in our lives. The dangers of the revival drawing to a close in the book of James are the dangers that are preventing us from being in a place where God can lead us deeper into the things of the Spirit and use us more powerful, powerfully. One of the first things that these people were facing that was a danger to their own personal revival and the ongoing revival of the book of Acts was that they had become overwhelmed by life's problems. Remember when Jesus spoke about the sower sowing the word and uh, we had different types of soil and different obstacles to the fruitfulness of that word. We can think right at the end, there were those that, 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 whose hearts, and the hearts were the soil, whose hearts were soft. It was good soil. And when the seed of God's word went into that soil, what did it do? It produced wonderful fruit, a hundredfold fruit. I mean, it was, it was a rev- state of revival in that, in that heart that was good ground. But the other hearts, these were the hearts that would resist that reviving work of the word of God in a heart. The the other hearts or the other soils did not produce such incredible and amazing fruitfulness. And one of those, of course, was was the ground that received the seed. But what happened was, as the seed grew, the cares of the world and the worries of the world, like nettles... And thistles and weeds choked the word, and the word wasn't fruitful. And so James had to address that. That's why in chapter 1 he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These people had gone through a lot. I mean, many of them had fled from their homes and had gone out into Judea. The rest of Judea, they'd preached the gospel and they'd suffered a lot. And this suffering was beginning to be overwhelming to them. They were beginning to question what God was doing, you know. They remembered the, the good old days only a few months ago when they were in Jerusalem and Everything was wonderful. Do you remember in Jerusalem it says, it says that everybody thought well of them. The grace of God was on them. They remembered those days and now here they were. Many of them had lost loved ones. Paul was persecuting and chasing them. They'd taken the gospel, but still they were going through great difficulties as refugees in these different towns and villages in Palestine. And they'd begun to blame God and to question God, and to wonder if God had not left them, and they remembered the good and the great breakthroughs, and now they were going through difficulties, and they were thinking to themselves, maybe God has left us. And they were dealing with these problems in the wrong manner. And this is what James addresses. And uh, we see how they're, they're dealing with these difficulties. The first thing that he says Is wait a second, these trials that you're facing, they are the plan of God for your life to bring you into a place of fruitfulness and victory. Just because you had a wonderful time in Jerusalem for a season where everything was going well and people were coming to God in their thousands and everybody thought well of you and the fear of of the inhabitants of Jerusalem was on you because God was doing such great things and now you're in difficulty does not mean that God has left you. On the contrary, God is deepening the work of revival in your life if you yield with it. Remember, revival is not just about great manifestations of the Holy Spirit, great miracles and breakthroughs, and then great salvations. All those things are wonderful. But once you've had all of these breakthroughs, what happens next? The real work of revival is to deepen the work of God in our lives. Next month, uh, and when we look at the story of revivals, we'll see that how some revivals lasted, or, or, or the effects of those revivals lasted many generations, hundreds of years, because when the Holy Spirit moved in power and saving power, the Holy Spirit was also cooperated with to do a very deep work in people's lives. A classic example is Wesley. Uh, And the Methodists. They were called the Methodists because their method allowed God to do a deep work in their lives. They didn't just go out saving people and and moving in great power as the Holy Spirit swept up and down Great Britain through these great preachers and these on fire. It, It was more than just being on fire and having power to witness that comes when the Holy Spirit came. But what Wesley did is he ensured that they were basically in cell groups or societies. And so these people would meet because Wesley never intended to form a denomination. Do you know that Wesley died, an Anglican? He never intended to form a a denomination. He just wanted to revive people, uh, to see people saved and to see them discipled. So to begin with, they were in cell groups and they would come together and they would challenge one another and encourage one another. You know, in February, our senior minister is starting, you can read about it in the Revival Times, a new course on Tuesday evening. It's for everybody that wants to go on it. And the course is called Soul Talk. And what that course is, it's about us with our friends and and those of us that we know in cells helping one another to go deeper with God. That's what it's all about. And that's exactly what they did in the Wesleyan Revival. And that's why it lasted for so long. Yet when you look at, say, the Welsh revival in the early 1900s, it brought hundreds of thousands of people to, to Christ very quickly. But within a few years, apart from a few notable people, like George Jeffreys who formed Elim 100 years ago, apart from a few notable people, there was hardly any trace of what had happened after a few years. Why? Because although the Holy Spirit came in power and conviction... There was no cooperation to deepen the work of God in people's lives. And so what was happening here with James is that these new believers who had been swept into the kingdom, literally, in Jerusalem, in the early book of Acts, they were now no longer new believers, but they were bruised and battered believers. Believers that had gone through tough times now. They were now in a new area, area of pioneering the gospel, and therefore they were question, questioning whether what they were going through, whether God had left them. Later on in chapter 1, he had to address and say to them, look, uh, don't blame God. Don't blame God with what you're going through. Because God is still good in the difficult times. He's as good in the difficult times as he he is in the great times. God doesn't change. There's a picture in James uh, where it says that, you know, that, that God is like the sun at its highest level. Every good gift, chapter 1, verse 17, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. These revival people, they're in danger of beginning to blame God. To to, to say, it's your fault, God. Just like Job was tempted, even by his own wife, to blame God. And one of the things that can kill the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is when we begin to blame God. Instead of realizing that God is as much at work in our lives during difficult times than during wonderful times. In fact, you know what? He's actually more at work. And that when we feel God's absence, he's not absence at all. In fact, he's at work in a deeper way than you could probably not possibly imagine during those times. Now, thank God for the times of refreshings, because that's one of the things that they had in Acts, didn't they? Times of refreshings. Well, now they were going through times of deepenings, and because of this pressure that they were under, they were turning to different types of methods to deal with the situation that they found themselves in. We know that in the early book of Acts, that, 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 that early uh, revival community, one of the things that they were known for was prayer. They were constantly in prayer. The dangers in James was that they would turn away from prayer to deal with their situations and to other needs. That's why when you look read the book of James, there is such a lot of focus on riches and rich people. In fact, in the first chapter, you find that uh, uh, having understood that going through difficult times, God is deepening the work of revival in these people's lives and and to ask God for wisdom to know how to deal with what they're going through. He then gives the example in verse 9 of the humble poor person and the rich person. And he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich men fade in the midst of his pursuit. And James pictures that those that are poor are rich in faith. In James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my bre- beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So what is taking place here is that people are now trying to deal with their problems through focusing on material power. So what was happening? Where, they were, where, where there was a spirit of generosity in the early church in Pentecost, where people were praying and people would give as anyone had need. Do you remember that? As they had need. They would give and there was this spirit of generosity Things were changing. Now they'd come into difficult times. So what was happening in some of these communities is during these difficult times of persecution, uh, the rich people, they were turning to their riches. They were using their riches to meet their needs, and they were putting their faith in their money, in their wealth, uh, in everything that they had. But not only were the, the wealthy turning from God and putting their trust in their money, But people were turning from God and turning to the rich, hoping that they would solve their problems. And that's why in some of the congregational meetings, James had to address the fact that a rich person would come in. And the actual Greek says that this rich person had shining clothes and gold fingers. That's literally there. He was was there with his bling. And so this rich, resourceful person would come into the house church or the congregation, he'd be there in his shiny suit and his golden fingers. And people would immediately say, I need to be friends with him. I want to be in that person's cell group. I want to get to know this, but hey, hey, nice to meet you. Yeah, no, we can... Why? Because they thought, this person has resources to meet my need. So not only did the rich people were in danger of running from God, to their riches, but also those that weren't so rich were in danger of running from God to the rich people, hoping that they would meet their needs. Later on in chapter 5, he will speak a powerful word of revival to the rich. He'll say, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Uh, behold, the wages of your laborers who moved your f- mowed your fields, you have kept by, back by fraud. And what, what he's saying is, he's saying that the rich people need to realize, because he says to them, your riches have rotted, but they hadn't. He says your garments are moth-eaten, but they, they weren't. What he was saying to these rich people who were putting their trust not in God's provision, but in materialism, he was saying, you have to treat the wealth that you have like it's going to be in the next life. In other words, you have to treat it now as if it's moth-eaten. You have to treat it now as if your uh, gold and silver has corroded. In other words, you don't hold on to it but you understand what is this. You use it for the kingdom of God. The attitude that they had earlier on in the day of Pentecost, where people were selling things, and they they weren't holding on to their money, thinking, oh, it's difficult times now. I I better not give to the Lord. I better not look after the poor. I better not share. I'll just hoard. This this is my security. Also, the other thing that was, was taking place was that during these times of pressure that was coming on them, as the Holy Spirit was trying to do a te- deeper personal work of revival in these uh, Christians, was that as God was working in them and as the pressure of circumstance came to test them and, and to deepen their faith in God, and they were running to things like money and rich people and wealth, also what was happening? is they were beginning to fall out with one another. When everything was wonderful and rosy in Jerusalem, there was no need to fall out. Everybody had what they needed. Everything was wonderful. Everything was positive. Loads of people were getting saved. Everybody thought well of them. It was, it was wonderful times of seasons of refreshing, but now things weren't going well, and, and people were, 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 were looking at, at, at getting their needs met no longer from God, but but from the limited resources that were around them. And so this is why we find in chapter 4, I'm going to read it, this picture of the church backsliding from a position of personal revival. And what it was is that their eyes were no longer on God or his spirit, but they had now become carnal, fleshly, earthbound, and they were looking at the limited resources around them to meet their needs. Chapter 4 of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? So what does this word passions, this word passion here is actually the Greek word for hedonism. It's hedonai, hedonism. Anybody ever heard of hedonism? Hedonism is basically the pursuit of pleasure as the highest form of life. Hedonism teaches that, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. In other words, get as much pleasure and as little pain out of life as possible, and that's the best thing that you can hope for. So these Christians were now hedonistic. They were now looking for relief from the pain of persecution, difficulties, hard times, and they were saying, do you know what? We're going through trials, difficulties, hard times. You know, what what do we do? How do we deal with this pain? Well, what they wanted to do was that they wanted to take something or, or to experience something in their life that would deal with the pain. It's like when you have a headache. You take an aspirin and you medicate. You put that medicine in your mouth in order to deal with the with the pain so hedonism that was in the rife in the church was trying to come to kill the work of the holy spirit you will find that often revivals cease in their power because of this often in a revival you get a early generation that pay the price in order to cooperate with the work of the holy spirit and they will do great things and have great breakthroughs just like there were in the book of acts Breakthroughs, lots of people coming in, God providing, resources coming into the church. And then what will usually take place is people get used to that, or people get born into a place where there's already been sacrifice, where there's already been blessing that has been brought into the church by the Spirit and by people that are prepared to sacrifice. And they're enjoying the blessing, but they've never been through the pain that brought the blessing. You hear what I'm saying? And so often in a revival, the second generation or the third generation become colder and colder to the things of God because they take everything that they've got for granted. And they begin to turn their eyes from the things of God and paying the price to follow Jesus as a disciple and they turn their eyes to the other things of the world that can bring them pleasure. What calls quarrels, what calls fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your hedonistic passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so here is a picture, really, of people that are all wanting pleasure, they're wanting the good life, they're wanting the best the world can get, And there's only limited resources available, so they're fighting over it. This can uh, occur in many different ways. It can be fighting over position or status. It can be fighting over finances or prosperity. Uh, All of this, fighting to get position, fighting to get an abundance, wanting more pleasure. And they came into contact because there's only limited resources, and they were fighting about this. This was the wisdom that James spoke about in um, James chapter 3, where he spoke uh, in verse 14 about having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You see, there was the riches again. That rich man had money, that person had wealth, and they wanted it. Ambition. They wanted to be somebody. They wanted that status, status. And he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition often kills the revi- reviving work of God. Do you know that? I mean, even in our own movement, thank God for 100 years of, of Elam, but if you get hold of that book or, or read the history of Elam, not all of it is wonderful. Great moves of revival where they would... Uh, George Jefferson would take his evangelistic band, and this is what they would do. They would go into a city. They would hire a hall. They didn't have anybody to fill it. They would just had the the band of, 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 of 12, 15, 20 max people. They would hire the hall. Then they would start meetings, and then they would believe God for revival. They would believe God to come. And often what would happen was they would preach the gospel, they would And then often what would happen is God would come in a great miracle. Something powerful would take place. And everybody around the area would know that somebody had been healed, and they'd know the person that had been healed. And so they'd come, and the whole thing would grow and grow and grow. And then out of these hundreds and thousands of people getting saved, they would start congregations, many of which are still here today, like Kensington Temple. And so you can look at all the wonderful things, but also in the history of Elam, you can also see great evidence at times of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition by some of the top leaders. You know, George Jeffreys was a powerful evangelist, and his brother Stephen Jeffreys was also a powerful evangelist. And at times, they didn't get on because they were jealous of one another. George Jeffreys eventually left the Elin movement that he founded, partly because he didn't get on with some of the other leaders. There was jealousy. There was selfish ambition that can kill things. So this is, this is, this is not just something that's happening in James' time. This can often happen in reverse. I can think of some, some recent moves of God in the last 20, 30 years in different places where God was pouring out the Spirit, but in the end there was leadership problems at the top, people disagreeing with one another behind the scenes, and, and very soon the thing Petered out. Now, we're talking about what can kill revival, but these are also the things that can stop revival as well. Do you hear what I'm saying? Or, 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 or hinder revival in, in our lives. And we're talking about personal revival. So, chapter 4, you covet, you can't obtain, you fight, you quarrel. They're not going to the Lord. And when they do go to the Lord, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you, wrongly, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I will not go too much in detail in this, but last Sunday evening at the 7 o'clock Holy Spirit fire service, I spent some time on this spiritual adultery. And what Paul was saying is this, is that what these people were doing was that they were turning from God to idol worshipper. And he was giving it as a picture of the bride of Christ turning and going off and having an affair with somebody that wasn't their husband. Powerful words. But then in verse 5, he speaks about how to remedy these things. He speaks about, he says, Or do you not suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that is made to dwell in us? And, And in the Greek, this means that it's speaking about the Holy Spirit yearning jealously. Like a husband would yearn jealously for his wife, like Hosea yearned jealousy for the wife that God told him to take that was unfaithful to him, a living prophecy about what Israel had done for God. And then we come back to where James is speaking to them about how to retain that revival in their lives how to how to foster the personal revival that they'd known they were going through difficult times but that was meant to deepen the revival not stop the revival they were reacting to situations and circumstances in a fleshly manner in an ungodly manner and they were looking to the world now to solve their problems and they were turning from God who is their husband To the world, and they were committing spiritual adultery. And so he says to them, The Holy Spirit, number one, wants you back. The beginning of revival, as I've said, or the consistency of continuing revival is always the passion of the Holy Spirit for his church. And then the church responding to that passion. Verse six, he gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God, resist from the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God. This was their problem, as it always is, is that they were getting further and further away from God. The difficulties that they were facing, the problems that they needed to solve, these things, they were allowing these things to push them further and further away from God when God wanted these things to push them further and further into God. Whenever we face a trial, a test, a difficulty, an obstacle in our path, it will either drive us to God or it will cause us to draw back from God. Those are the two things that happen when a difficulty comes. We can either blame God or we can trust God. We can either panic and try and deal with the situation through carnal, manipulative or materialistic needs. Or we can go deeper to God in prayer and say, God, I need you like I've never needed you before. We can use the wisdom from below that relies on natural resources or the wisdom from above that relies on spiritual resources resources. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your, your, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, when you read this verse's It sounds like a terrible situation that James is calling them. You know, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. And it sounds a very negative thing, but it's not negative at all. It's very positive. Because what James is saying is is he's saying, wake up. Wake up again to revive. Wake up and see the situation as it really is. The problem was, was that they were getting into deception. And he said, look, wake up. You see, draw near to God. It wasn't that these things would draw them near to God. It was draw near to God and see the situation that you're in so that you can deal with it. You know, the the mourning and weeping, uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom, it's not negative. It's not negative. It's What it's saying is stop living off the shiny suits and the golden fingers. Stop fighting amongst one another for your hedonistic desires to try and get pain relief from the world, pain relief from uh, pleasure, pain relief from, you know, shopping, pain relief from these things. Just now you stop trying to get pain relief from all these things and instead draw near to God and realize what a terrible situation that you're in. Why? Because God will give grace to the humble. And all of this is so that in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a wonderful end there was. So the work of revival is a recurring thing. Uh, Even when great power comes to the church, in fact, especially when great power for witness comes to the church, especially when God brings, if I can use that phrase, success to a church, especially when a church goes from tens to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands, especially when resources get poured in to that church, and all of a sudden, you've got so much abundance and so much prosperity coming in, into your place, into your handle, and God is blessing you, and it's a time of reform and everything is working and everything is going well during those times more than ever there needs to be a continual deepening in the hearts of of believers and what I mean by this is as we come to a close is that I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to me once and I'd gone through a difficulty, a test, a trial we all go through them and I'd gone through a test and or trial, or difficulty, and finally it had finished. And, it, and, and I came out, and I was pleased it was over, but I was mature, maturer, closer to God. You know, I was better for it, if you know what I mean. Glad it was over, but better for it. And, and I felt the Holy Spirit just affirm me one time in prayer and just say, well, you know, you made your mistakes, but you passed the test. Well done. But uh, you're not ready For the greatest test. And I thought, not ready for the greatest test. Give me a break, can't I? I have a time of refreshing for a while. I have just come out. You're not ready for the greatest test. And in my heart, I sort of of said, well, what is the greatest test? And I really do believe, do believe, that the Holy Spirit said to me, you're not ready for the test of my blessing. In other words, that if God was suddenly going to pour out his power on my life, and begin to bless and bless and bless and bless with success and success and success. You know what I'm talking about? And everything, and just empower and give me victory and victory and victory that actually I wouldn't be able to cope with that. And you say, well, what would happen? I might, I might end up being spoiled, I might end up focusing on the blessing instead of the one that's given the blessing. Now, God wants to bless us. I mean, God wants to bless us. God, God is, is blessing. We read in James that, that He's always good. All the time, God is good. But sometimes, what He wants to do is deepen His work into in our lives so that He can give us blessing. It's not all suffering for suffering's sake, do you hear? Don't think if you're going through a difficult time, oh, well, then, oh, more suffering, more suffering. The suffering has a purpose. That's what he was saying to these people in James. They'd had all the blessing, hadn't they? They'd been there in Jerusalem when it was just absolutely amazing. Even the world was going, you are great. This is amazing. They'd had that blessing. And now they'd come to a situation where they were going through difficulties and God was saying, wait a second, this too is a blessing. This is meant to be, in the end, a blessing in your life so that you can Handle greater blessings should it come your way. God wants to do it. God wants us to be in a place of gratitude and thanksgiving. Looking forward to R.T. Kendall coming back in February for six months. And one of his, like, key signature themes is gratefulness and thanksgiving. And, a, in other words, appreciation of God and what God gives to us. It's just one of his... One of his themes, you know, you you see what he posts on Facebook and you hear his sermons and in conversation, very often you will come back to being thankful and grateful for, for what you have. And God wants us to be in a situation where we really appreciate him and we really appreciate any blessing that comes into our life. He doesn't want a group of Christians that if he pours out revival power, and suddenly, God blesses, say, Kensington Temple, and we begin to multiply as a church of tens and hundreds of thousands. He wants us to be able to handle that without having church splits and arguing over who's the greatest and who's got more and, 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 and messing up and, and not using the finances that are flowing in and, 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 and not being grateful to God. He wants us to be in a position individually, corporately, whereas if he does give us a superabundance of blessing... Guess what? The greatest test. But we'll be able to handle it. Remember, God wants you to appreciate him. And so sometimes in a difficult time, in a difficult time, is all you got. And all the other stuff is stripped away and said, you know, Lord, all I've got is you. And you appreciate it. When you've got everything, sometimes you don't appreciate him, do you? You're too busy appreciating all the everything that you've got. And sometimes when you've got everything... When God gives you another blessing, you're like, oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. I mean, somebody who's gone through a, of, a dangerous sickness nearly to death, they appreciate their health in a new way, don't they? I'm not saying that we all have to go through that. I'm just saying that somebody, somebody that, that has really experienced poverty or terrible accommodation, they really appreciate when they get that nice room, don't they? not saying that we all have to go through that. In fact, God wants us to grow, uh, not necessarily say, oh, well, without doing that. I think as we mature, God will take us. So I just wanted to share with you uh, just some thoughts, really, from the book of James to show you how even people in revival need to keep checking their hearts for an ongoing work of the Spirit. And then next week, what we will be looking at is corporate revival. We'll we'll actually, maybe I should have done that first, but it's the way I put the thing. We, We will go from personal revival, and we will go back into the blessing of that, those early days in Pentecost, and, and having this uh, session today will allow us to reflect on how God moves to get today, uh, uh, then and today. Thank, thank you.)